My name's Jacinta Douglas. I have the pleasure of actually um, being in the position of um, a research professor that in a partnership of La Trobe University and the Summer Foundation. The joy that I have around that is, is that the Summer Foundation works so hard to fulfil so many of the goals that we have as people working with brain injury. The Summer Foundation works to, towards making sure that we develop knowledge and evidence around making a difference in the lives of people with brain injury, particularly people with severe brain injury and complex needs. And that means making sure that those people have the opportunity to access the community, to have meaningful interactions, to live where they choose to live. And it also means that they have access to health and support that is necessary for them throughout their lives. And the reason why the Summer Foundation and someone like Alan Martin come together is because Alan was instrumental in setting up the Victoria Brain Injury Recovery Association, which had very similar goals. Absolutely. I mean, Alan was, was one of those... Um, I was going to say, I was thinking while I was driving here from La Trobe, I was going to describe him as a quiet achiever, but quiet doesn't quite fit Alan because Alan had the most amazing ability to talk people around and to make sure that you didn't leave without saying yes to whatever it happened to be that he was asking you for. But Alan was, if you like, um, the power behind the throne. And it's really exciting and nice to see Joan here every year um, as a very important part of Alan's life um, to actually recognise the work that Alan did. So it's a lovely coming together. And you know there are people here in this audience who have been very active in the Victoria Brain Injury Recovery Association for BIRA for many years. I think we're getting younger. I think we're looking younger um, and it's exciting to have a venue, uh, to, to have the, the, the sort of opportunity like this to come together. And what's really exciting about tonight is not only do we, do we actually get to support developing researchers in the area of, of brain injury, but we get to hear an amazing speaker tonight and that is, is really important from our perspective because what our goal is is to develop evidence and knowledge to make a difference in the lives of people. One of the things that's exciting about tonight is if you've been before, and a lot of you have, is we usually give one scholarship. Tonight, we give two scholarships. The first one, as it has always been, really contributed because of the generosity of the Rotary, of, of the Rotary Q, or the Q, yeah, the Rotary Club of, Club of Club, yeah, thank you, George. And George Virginis is here tonight to actually um, make that presentation. So that's exciting. But tonight we have two scholarships, two Alan Martin scholarships, and the other scholarship we can actually thank Robertson Gill for actually supporting the second scholarship, which means we've doubled our efforts at completing great research to make a difference in people's lives. So I'd like to welcome Danielle and Lucy tonight and they will be actually um, presenting the second scholarship. 
which will happen at the end of our presentation. Okay, so without further ado though, I don't want to take time away from our fabulous speaker, Professor Fari Khan. Talk about impressive. Um, you know, I don't have to read your bio because I know how impressive you are. You're such a passionate um, rehabilitation physician. You work so hard for the people that we're all here because we care about. But also at the academic end, Fari has an amazing CV. Um, this woman is, is, is in academic positions in over 30 national or international positions. You sit not only as director of, of your organisation at, at Melbourne Health, but you're at the Gus Nossel Institute. You travel all over the world as an invited keynote speaker. We are so privileged to have Fari here tonight. <laughs> and we truly, truly are. The other thing that if you were an academic, you'd think about is, oh, so, you know, I wonder what her publications are like. She has more than 350 publications. I didn't see many NHMRC projects that I reviewed this year that had anywhere near that number of publications. So Fari truly is an exceptional Australian researcher who does exceptional work in the area of rehabilitation. We're so, so lucky to have you here tonight. Thank you for being here and not in China or all of the other countries that you spend a lot of time in. So welcome to Fari. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jacinda, and thank you to everybody for uh, the invitation to speak here today. Um, it's a huge privilege to be here in this setting. Uh, I'd like to thank the organisers, Jacinta, Joe, Natasha, who's been struggling with my presentation for <laughs> about an hour, because being a public physician, we don't have apples. It's never going to happen in my lifetime. So, so, you know, that was a huge issue. And uh, thank you to Q, uh, the Rotary Club of Q, and also to our lawyer firms. Uh, thank you so much for, for supporting research and rehabilitation. It means a lot to me personally to be here. I, I think the world of you guys, especially so many faces I know who I've met over the last 15, 20 years, uh, allied health colleagues, and uh, also from La Trobe University, so many familiar faces. So thank you very much. It's a huge privilege to talk about uh, this amazing man. I've been listening to Joan, and uh, Joan was telling me uh, about what um, uh, Alan was able to achieve. Uh, he was a huge, huge visionary, a really modest man. When I was trying to look him up, I couldn't find a single photograph of him that would do him justice, so I actually didn't put one in. And Joan was telling me that uh, uh, things about him that were really inspiring, and all I can say is it's because of people like him that all of us are here today to build on his vision. And in fact, I was just learned this afternoon that he also set up the Australian Volunteers Abroad, which I didn't know. And you know, it is like, uh, it's people like him who are so modest that they never actually advertise themselves. It's just what they leave behind as legacies that really matter. And so it's a huge honor for me to be here uh, to give this lecture in his, uh, in his memory and also to congratulate the winners who will be announced later. And, uh, I'm sorry, here we go. 
So as I said, um, I couldn't find a single nice photo that would do justice. And uh, he obviously was not into, uh, <laughs> no, no, I put it there. I put it there because of brain matter. And also, uh, thank you, it's Robinson and Gill. Yes, thank you so much. All righty. So um, when um, I was asked to give this lecture, and I thought, you know, I'm a neurorehabilitationist by training. Uh, my PhD was in multiple sclerosis. And I did it because at the time, all the male colleagues of mine said to me, MS is too hard. It's too girly, it's too much touchy-feely stuff. You do it, we'll do stroke and we'll do other things. So I thought, well, all right, I'll go and do this one. And I'm glad I did what I did. And that's how my career started in research, accidental researcher, really. I had no training, no nothing. And uh, I read everything I could possibly read to teach myself. And I'm hoping today that one of the things I'm going to share with you is that you can be self-taught and how you can kind of do the things that you aim to do and how we can collaborate. But also, I didn't really want to talk about MS or stroke or acquired brain injury, not because they're not important, but because I think, as, uh, as um, our previous speaker said, the, um, the vision for rehab is way bigger than an outpatient clinic or a community center or a tertiary facility like the Royal Melbourne. I think the world is our oyster. So I wanted to share with all of you some of the work that we're doing in our department. The department I chair is is about amazing people. I'm the granny, I'm the oldie in, in my department and I have this enormous group of really motivated young men and women who have basically been selected because they are curious, because they want to know and because they want to challenge perceptions and look at a new paradigm, new way to kind of address patient care within the public sector, which as you know, there is no money in the sector. So it's a really a labor of love. And I also want to make one point that not one of us is paid to do research. We are not paid to do research. So we're public physicians and none of us is full time. So, you know, when people often say to me, but you have so much money, it's a Royal Melbourne, University of Melbourne, blah, blah, you know, it's nonsense. It's not like that, okay? So I'm gonna put it, really bring it down to reality and share with you some of the things to motivate you. So today I'm gonna to talk more about the global aspects of rehabilitation. And to me, this is the next frontier for us. So I'm gonna talk very briefly about transitions in global health and why rehabilitation is so relevant. It's not about rehab medicine, it's about rehab professionals, which includes all of us together. The World Health Organization, why they have suddenly woken up to rehabilitation. We've been around for a long time, nearly 100 years, right? Or even, well, a little bit, 80 to 100 years. But suddenly they have woken up to what we can do for them, not what they can do for us, but what we can do for them. And I want to share with you what we have done down under. Most people overseas and even local people don't really know the amount of contribution the Australian people here in Melbourne and elsewhere have done to this international effort. And again, I thought, you know, it might be a little bit boring. I hope not. But just share with you what efforts we've done and um, hopefully you may want to join part of it. So as you can see in this slide, it's just a summary of how rehab is evolved global perspective in terms of global health. So I say this because um, as um, you heard that I do have a professorial appointment at the Northern Institute of Global Health. It's an honorary appointment and a lot of the work that is uh, coming their way from the WHO is uh, linked to disability. And 
disability physicians, disability professionals like all of us need to be involved in this, so just be aware of it. So we know that there's huge amounts of economic, demographic, social and technological transitions globally and I'll show you some slides in a minute to show what I'm talking about. So we know that there is no poor, there aren't that many poor countries anymore. When we look in our Asia Pacific region, you look at China, you look at India, you look at Indonesia, these countries are no longer low economic uh, um, band of the World Bank. They're now uh, um, in the middle ranking and I'll show you those in a minute too. We also know that nobody's now dying when they're 30, 40, 50, 60 years of age where in Australia we can still live well into our 80s and you'll see that the transition of uh, longevity, uh, the, the living with disabilities, the better medical care, the universal healthcare coverage system, how that has changed access to rehabilitation and that's a huge focus for the World Health Organization at the moment. And also urbanization mega cities you know we think Melbourne is big and we've got nearly well we're going to beat Sydney aren't we in 2020 apparently in terms of migration 1500 new families move into Melbourne every week just in case you're wondering so we are going to be the largest city in Australia not Sydney but Melbourne yeah and then we have the rise and the rise and the rise of the non-communicable diseases so previously people of world health was looking at immunizations and maternal and child health care and this and that well that's no longer relevant we still have Ebola like we heard last night uh, in Democratic Republic of Congo, but it's not like malaria episodes everywhere or uh, poliomyelitis epidemics everywhere, measles and whatever else. It's the non-communicable diseases. And what do we do? We are the discipline that looks after non-communicable diseases, lifetime care, disability care. All of that is included in our realm. So it's really important to be aware of this. And then, of course, you know, if we don't act now, it's really now or never for us as a discipline. So. With that in mind, have a look at this slide. This is a global ec economic status slide, just to give you a rough idea. I don't think I have a pointer here, but you will. what I wanted to show you was that there's very little least developed. So previously, if you looked at South America, parts of Asia and Africa, they were very low, low developed countries. They're not like that anymore. They're in the middle band. Similarly, when you look at world health banking indicators, meaning where is the money to be invested? It's in health, it's in education, it's in infrastructure and all that. Well, they're really well on their way ahead. And in fact, Australia is much behind some of those countries uh, in this context. When you look at population pyramids, for example, what you're going to see here is that when you look at less developed regions from the 1970s to 2050, the predictions are that the more developed and the less developed countries will be same. Same in terms of mortality, same in terms of fertility rates and so forth. So, you know, they are catching up and we need to really um, work together as to how we're going to manage this situation. Again, urbanization massive. Look at megacities. Look at our region. Australia's here, right? We are in this region, whether we like to say that or not. If you look at the large red circles, these are over 10 million. This is huge, and it impacts Australia uh, on us as a people, as a community, and also as a global community. What are we doing about it? Not much, I'll tell you. So then where are the world's poor? Where are the world's poor? If you have a look over there, India and China, they are majority, sort of the poorest people in the world are still there. And you can see, although those figures are much improved now, but there's still a huge number. Now, this slide is a direct computer screen. I apologize for the busyness. This is non-communicable diseases. So things like stroke, ischemic heart disease, anxiety, kidney, lung, liver, whatever issues there are. These are non-communicable diseases because people are getting good treatment. They're not dying of these diseases anymore. They're living. So that means you and I have to look at people with renal failure, congestive cardiac failure, survivors of lung cancer, survivors of bowel cancer, whatever it might be, stroke, traumatic brain injury, spinal cord injury. And this 
at the pink bit at the bottom are the communicable diseases like malaria, like polio, like whatever used to be a big issue. A long time ago, everything was pink, but now it is blue, right? Now, if you look at even Africa, it was all pink, but even African nations are doing much better than before. And you'll see that survival rates from stroke and all are up and up and up. The point I'm trying to make here is non-communicable diseases are the next pandemic. We are there. So in terms of that sort of pandemic, these are the conditions that you can see listed here. Um, and the number of prevalence change, it's massive. The numbers of people with stroke, TBI, or if you look at rheumatoid arthritis or alcoholism or multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, you'll see a range of clinical conditions here. And the percentages are up and up. The thing for us to know is because they're survivors, they're survivors of some nasty illness, nasty problem that's led them to a number of functional limitations or disabilities and that's where we come in it's no longer you know immunizations or fertility or maternal and child health care it's all about disability care it's very expensive it's very very expensive so what they have said is that we need as rehab practitioners as disability practitioners we have to look at how we can work with primary health care this is complete change in paradigm remember in the past 50 80 years we've never linked in properly with primary care because we're always at the other end of the spectrum isn't it? Primary care is right there and they go to medical and surgical services and da-da-da all through the community, emergency, acute care, and then into subacute, so-called subacute care and community, and we come at the further this end. So we haven't ever been linked properly, and there's a lot of work going on around that system now. We need to be more diverse, more flexible, and we have to have affordable systems. If I want a locomat in Australia, and some of you will know that I have been writing a um, submission to the Department of Health Victoria for t eight years, ten years, I've given up now getting white hairs and giving up is a bad job. But the point is, they will not give us a single locomat because it costs nearly $700,000. Can I just say to you, if you go to India or you go to China, every second hospital has a locomat. Where there's not a single facility, public or private, within a Victoria in adult medicine have it. There's one privately run locomat by a private practitioner that I won't go there, and one in the Royal Children's Hospital, which is only for research and very difficult to access. And obviously, we're all grown up, so we our patients can't go this for kiddies so after eight years we've given it up and we just go with the flow but it's really important because these all these all our neighbors have it and they're doing really gangbusters with it not us and similarly you know we're looking at how can we change our systems of care so you know you've heard about what is that thing my record a bit scary but some of you may have joined in and others like me have opted out because I have a trust issue because I don't know and you know everybody's hacking everybody and I don't really want to have my public and private enterprise on the I don't know on Google uh, whatever it is so you know it's just it's just about how we can change with the flow and what does this mean for us as rehab physicians all our patients now in the public hospital will be getting this my record half of them don't have a clue what they've signed up for I can tell you it's a real worry but you know it's not your in my place to tell them not to because we're not allowed to. Right. So it, it's an opt-in system unless you voluntarily opt out, unfortunately. Anyway, so just giving you the perspective of where Australia sits within the global disability kind of world, and we are so far behind and we need to really pull up our socks. And second point I want to make in this presentation is that somebody was telling me earlier it is a call for action. I said, indeed it is. Because um, a, in March last year, the WHO launched a massive meeting in Switzerland. You know, the disability office has only two workers. So when I talk about the WHO disability services, there's two people, right? Two people, yeah, in a little corner of the building where they can't even look outside. They don't even have a window. Need I say that? But anyway, it's true, you know, those of you who've gone there will know what I'm saying. So anyway, suddenly they've woken up. The 
that Rehab 2030 is the way forward and we nearly need to get our act together. So some visionary people have been looking at what sort of things need to be done to be able to get to the point that we are at at the moment. So for example, we have the Convention of the Rights of Disabled People. You know, we didn't have a formal document before 2006. It's only like 10, 12 years ago. And if you look at 2014, in May 2014, the World Health Assembly endorsed the Global Disability Action Plan. It was a huge step forward for rehab medicine. And that's when the health departments of all the countries in the world that are affiliated with the WHO realized that there is this discipline called rehabilitation and we matter because we save money every time our patients improve functionally they're less dependent on their carers on their loved ones and on the community and on you and I as taxpayers and this is unfortunately the truth of it because it's like every time there's a war globally what happens massive improvements in amputation medicine because we have new amputees and suddenly all the research work with the big uh, countries goes into developing more cooler gadgets. So unfortunately, every time we have an advancement in rehabilitation of any kind, it's related to economic reasons and usually war and devastation and all the horrors that we hear. Anyway, 2017, they've come out with this whole plan of um, basically redesigning health systems. So normally, for example, if I want to go and ha have my kid immunized, it's a vertical system immunization. Or if I want to go and have a contraception, it's a vertical system of healthcare. Rehab medicine or rehab as a discipline, generic rehabilitation, is a horizontal system that needs to be sustained at various levels. And it isn't about just one system, it's a mega system change. And we just need to go with that flow because we don't understand we just try and blend in with the public hospital system or like as I call our organization a knee-jerk reaction to every crisis yeah and then we just put band-aids and keep going and hoping it doesn't happen again I think it's not smart and we know what's happening globally and we need to plan and anticipate and kind of get one step ahead of all of this so then they came out with this uh, thing that you know health systems is really important you heard about the millennium goals and now the millennium goals have gone into the 21st century uh, sustainable development goals it's the change of name yeah and so they talk about health for all and here they talk about health systems which i just mentioned to you they talk about financing for australia it's not a problem in terms of financing why because we have a universal healthcare system the medicare thank the lord we have it right and uh, so countries like indonesia are now having a universal healthcare system countries like Mongolia, I was so impressed when I was there, they're setting it up. So it's about everybody putting their two cents worth in to make this program. Like in Switzerland, the only universal healthcare program they have is for spinal cord injury because they always fall off when they're skiing and get spinal cord injuries. If you're not, it's a national system, it's mandatory, like we have the TAC thing, it's the same thing, but only for spinal cord injuries. Tough luck if you've also knocked your head off, you know, that doesn't matter, it's a spinal cord injury. But anyway, if you look at um, medicines, medicines are not our bread and butter. What we do is adaptive equipment, low cost, locally obtained, uh, cheap, affordable, quick, um, you know, um, um, technology and really have to hone that in. You know, we talk about um, uh, my patients sometimes don't turn up in our hospital clinics. We run 10, 11 clinics a week. And, you know, of those at least uh, five clinics would have no, did not arrive, failed to show. You think we don't have mobile phones? We don't have an app? You go to India, back of beyond, and they have, even your poorest church mouse, and you haven't got anything to eat. You've got a mobile phone, and you're getting all these apps from all your doctors and everything, and you're turning up. It's about low-cost technology, how we use that. We don't use it in metropolitan Melbourne. You know, it's a real... I, I'm sorry if I'm whinging, but I'm just trying to share with you the frustrations of why we can't do better, because we can, yeah? Now, if you look at this particular slide, so the WHO came out with this, it's on their website, and they said multidisciplinary rehab should be 
made available. So thank goodness for all of us, the quality of evidence is high. Then they looked at specialized inpatient care and we have luckily good evidence. But what about the rest? You need to look at this slide because it doesn't mean what is happening elsewhere is useless because there's low evidence. It's only low because there aren't any studies done by any rehab professionals to build evidence. And this to me is very relevant because I will share with you what we have done over the last decade to build evidence for rehabilitation. Then you look at the National Disability Health Building Blocks. Now you know they talk about service delivery as a public rehabilitation director of a big service. You know we really struggle delivering what we should because there's no money in the system, there's no fat in the system of any kind, whether it's health personnel equipment or whether it's beds or it's availability of ambulatory services. It's really hand to mouth as I call it. Then you look at workforce. Well we haven't really done a good job in improving capacity. You know it is not just departments of universities and their jobs to educate people it's also workplaces to upskill and improve uh, capacity and we don't tend to do that health information and mostly leadership and governance they really go in hand in hand and so all future leaders we really need to get our act together and have a vision for whichever department we are part of whether we lead it or we are a member of a big department it's like a family you've got to work together and again it's all about how we can improve health at every level within the rehab sector then these, this is a summary of the WHO. You can look up their websites. What is, so do you know that at the moment globally they're classifying rehabilitation services because there's actually no concept of what is a rehab service? So I could be in, I don't know, Timbuktu and running an outpatient clinic there. Is that same as one in Alaska or same as in Melbourne? Well, nobody knows. So for the first time, the ISPRM, which is International Society of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, they're at least getting off you know, their seats and doing something about it. 61 National rehab societies globally are working and classifying. So we have done that in Australia as well now. Toolkit systems for policy planning. What the hell are we doing? Where do we go even with my record? I have no idea what I'm doing with my record, you know, for our patients in terms of rehab access and who's accessing that information, who's providing equipment in the community, who's doing home visits. How will we work out what we do? Well, we haven't a clue yet, so we, but we're working on it. Then we need to have surveys data. So for example, you know, it shocked me the other day to look at uh, my registrar came and said to me, do you know we see 128 patients every week, new referrals only within the Royal Melbourne? I thought, my God, that's a lot of work because, you know, I've been there for 20 years now and you get used to it and don't even think about the workload and it's been upping and upping every year and you think, how are the youngsters who are new to the department coping with that amount of workload? Technical standards, cost benefits. I tell you what, the only reason the government has invested in rehab at every level within Victoria, we have a population of just under 5 million. We have 19 public health networks and every one of those has a rehab service, inpatient and ambulatory. Why do you think that is? It's not because you and I are charming, no. It's because every time a patient will make one level improvement in your FIM scale, the one we all hate, yeah, the FIM, mm -hmm. right? One point improvement saves five minutes, 4.8 minutes of carer activity in the community. So you multiply that by three times a day for 20 years of a lifetime over a patient. You can imagine how much each functional improvement is saving the government. It is financial. It is a big draw card. We need to be smutty pants about making a case with the government about how to go about it, okay? Just be aware of these sorts of things. The problem we have is A, we don't um, use standardized measures across Victoria, across Melbourne, even big pub uh, public hospitals like ours. We don't talk to our neighbor because too much effort, no time. 
life's too busy, blah, blah. It's nonsense. We can do better. And also, I think that internationally and locally, we don't collaborate. No man is an island. We need to work together to set up massive databases for our um, patients with disabilities in the community, whether it's TBI, whether it's uh, you know um, head injury, multiple sclerosis, stroke, whatever it might be. We need to really get smart about it. So in response to all of these, the saga that I've shared with you just now, we set up the Australian Rehab Research Centre. Now you know there's not a single cent donated to this centre by our hospital or the government or anybody. It is complete labour of love, okay? So we set it up almost four years ago and we set it up on the WHO Disability Action Plan, which has those three objectives up top. That we improve access to rehabilitation services, we improve the strength of those rehabilitation services, especially CBR. There's going to be no money for beds, inpatient beds, not in my lifetime, I can tell you that now. And therefore, CBR, community-based rehab, is the way forward and the WHO is right behind it. So we need to be smart and plan ahead for that and strengthen our data. If we don't have data, we're no good. It doesn't matter how fantastic we are, we don't publish it, it's useless, it can, might as well not do it. That's why with all the young researchers, and I know there are lots of uh, you guys here tonight, if you've done something, no matter how small it is, try and publish it. It's really important to build up that base of research. And then, as you can see, that we actually did uh, a streaming of what our core objectives were in line with the WHO and we are the only centre in the world that does this by the way although there is a ICF centre um, Gwyneth uh, runs that in Sydney she's fantastic but their focus is more regional because their funding comes from Department of Foreign Affairs so they only go when the government is happy with the neighbours yeah you know that okay so so upskilling of rehab professionals and in response to that what we did was that we set up our flying faculty which I'll share with you uh, to tell you what that is all about and we set up systems and models of care that had never been set up in Victoria or Australia for that matter and a technology and we've set up a lot of little trials and I'll show you quickly what it's all about and also we've done all of these outcomes to show that what we do makes a difference it makes not just a difference to the patients and their families and to the communities but also makes a difference financially and we are a healthy society because we have rehab there Okay, so, so this is just a very short summary of some of the work we have done. This does not include the 36 papers we have published so far this year. But just to tell you, everything looks at patient outcomes, reducing service delivery costs associated with care in the longer term. And this is the reason we do what we do. And how we do that is by training, collaboration and engagements with partners in the community. A lot of goodwill, a lot of goodwill allows us to do what we do. Okay, so just for example, this is just one of my young physicians uh, who did, uh, recently did her PhD in spasticity care following stroke. It was a very interesting single center study. We have done 28 Cochrane reviews. Uh, we are the largest repository of a single center doing Cochrane reviews. Why we did this was because when I was many years ago, 10 years ago, when I was, had more energy, I tried to look up what was the evidence for something that I was doing and I could find nothing. And the more I looked at neurological conditions, whether it was stroke at that time, there was only one Cochrane review that, that was uh, from Scotland and that was about stroke uh, inpatient units make a better difference compared with generic care for stroke survivors in a general hospital ward. That was it. So since then we have worked and worked and worked and we worked with we work with six Cochrane groups including Milan where I sit on the executive for multiple sclerosis and rare diseases but we work with breast cancer group for example in Sydney with osteoporosis group in Canada Ottawa and so forth even um, brain degenerative disorders like at Queen Square Hospital in UK in London so we have expanded they refuse to have rehab do you know that for example, when I was at the Churchill Hospital doing my sabbatical at Oxford Centre and I went to see the person 
who was running the whole show there, and they said, oh, it was some junior neurosurgical registrar who was the lead. So I went up to him and I said, why don't you have this? He said, ah, oh, rehab, well, who wants rehab? Why don't you go to supportive care? I said, listen, what do you do? And he said, I'm a neurosurgeon. I said, well, you should be the one using your brain telling everybody what's happening. <laughs> do you know, I had to go see him three times, but he bought me a coffee in the end, which was only consolation. And eventually we got a cochlear and brain tumors. But if you had just, if we had just listened to him, or if I had just listened to what he said, I'd never get out of bed, because obviously whatever I did was useless compared to what neurosurgeons do. And anyway, we are one of the largest groups, and we have a lot of work, and we have a whole, the largest brain tumor rehab program in the world is run in our service, just to give you an idea. Another example is GBS, Guillain-Barre syndrome. You all know of it. It's not so common, thankfully, but when it occurs, it's devastating to the person and family. And you know, I was at Queen Square at the time at another visit, and they told me, well, rehab has nothing to offer Gainbari. I said, yeah, well, we'll do. We did 12 papers to show they were wrong. We did the Cochrane review. We did a randomized control trial, the only one in the world to this day is the gold standard. But it was just really to shut these people up because they're not right. They don't know what they're talking about. So unless you take that lead and prove it to them and show them, then you know, you're not going to do it. In our hospital, uh, when I spoke to our brain surgeon, breast cancer surgeons, for example, they said to me, chop, chop, that's it. So what do you mean chop chop, that's it? I mean, this is a human being, a woman you're talking about, chop chop. So he said, well, what have you got to offer? I said, we'll show you. So we did the Cochrane Review in bre Breast Cancer. It's the largest Cochrane Review. We never have to update as long as I live because it's gold standard. We did the largest and the only randomized control trial about breast cancer survivorship. And then we went ahead to do another seven, eight papers in a series showing long-term effects. And I think this year, early this year, we published the more, uh, another systematic review showing what interventions work and what don't work in breast cancer. So the point is, if you listen to some of these people, you never get anywhere. So don't. Think, think for yourself, you know, we all have a brain. Similarly, we did non-Cochrane reviews. So, you know, you think, well, why would you do Cochrane reviews? Because they're a nightmare, I must admit. And you're stuck with it for life. You are stuck with it for life, right? And that's why we have 25 of them to continue for as long as I live, which is a pain, which means you have to read everything on it every two years and update it. Then we thought, oh, this is too much work. We just go and do the non-Cochrane ones. And we've done loads and loads of them. But what we have now done is, from ordinary systematic reviews to Cochrane library to non-Cochrane libraries, now we are publishing systematic reviews of Cochrane reviews within the Cochrane library. And if you think that's not bad now, we have moved the next step where we're looking at international guidelines for breast cancer, for brain cancer, for stroke, and we're actually saying this is not right. We've just published publishing a new one on brain tumors and another one on trauma, because trauma surgeons haven't a clue what they're doing. Because you know, once you fix some major injuries, they do a very good job. But the longest and most expensive part of rehabilitation is rehabilitation and trauma care. It's nonsense what they're saying, but I'll show you all of that. It's more to kind of enthuse all of you because, you know, you are the next leading lights in rehabilitation. So you need to be with it in terms of where you can go and what the literature is. Similarly, who says we can't do randomized control trials? Are we stupid or what? It's not that. It's just that when you do a randomized control trial, you only get answer to one question. Your population is extremely narrow and it's not always generalizable to other settings, even in your own hospital in a different clinic. So you can do randomized control trials, you can look at one topic and spend the rest of your life doing RCTs on that. It's not going to be clever. You don't get as much out of it. So we did about, we've done about 15. I think we did two uh, last year. We've got another two coming out now. And it is not about 
rehab medicine can't do randomized trials. It's just that we have to be smart and look at pragmatic and uh, practice clinical models and looking at observational studies and cohort studies, but more importantly, look at implementation research, which I'll tell you about in a minute, and also about other designs. Other designs are also very relevant. They're quite powerful to answer questions that you and I see in our clinical practices. Okay. So then we thought, okay, we can also do a number of CCTs and we've really done heaps of them. Then I've got these beautiful uh, girls up there who are uh, cancer researchers. So we have done a lot of work on cancer survivorship and I'll tell you a funny story. So we have the famous VCCC, the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Center. I don't know if I should say this, all this is being taped. My employers might hear it, but anyway, it <laughs> doesn't matter. So we have this super cool VCCC, yeah? But guess what? they should take a C out of it because it's not comprehensive because they don't have rehabilitation. Did you know that? It's all about improved survival for the cancer survivor patient who survived nasty illnesses, chemo, radiotherapy, blah, blah, blah. And then guess what? They're either not going to die, well, tough, because we've treated you, so you can't go to palliative care, or you have to give them formal notice that I have three months to live on, I don't know, 10th of December, and that's when my three months to live will... That's impossible. So you have pal care at one end, and then the person is waiting, either they're not dying or they're waiting to die, so they have nothing in between because rehab is not part of the VCCC. How sad is that? And the reason is just clerical and technical because Peter Mac never did it. So when they moved across, they still have no way to go for rehabilitation. So we are working out things now because they're right next to us. You can imagine endless referrals and no beds. Saga is stupid administrative clerical nonsensical stuff, yeah? So cancer is a big challenge for us, all of us. Then we have trauma, and I have these youngsters who are incredibly good. We've looked at systematic reviews uh, for multiple trauma, and we've actually shown that they are not doing the right thing, and we have new guidelines coming out very soon. Similarly, palliative care models. So I don't know what you guys might be familiar with advanced care plan. All of us are meant to have one. How would I like to die, and what I need to be done to me, and I can make the plan today, really whatever, it sounds very ominous, doesn't it? It's impossibly hard. So I have this young uh, researcher who's just finished her PhD, Crystal Song, and she's one of the first people in rehab to do the largest implementation studies in a public hospital showing that implementation research and rehab improves uptake education, autonomy and decision-making, supporting patients, making end-of-life decisions. It is not the realm of palliative care. So that was also one of the big fights we had in our organization. Because why, what does rehab have to do with people who are dying? We have everything to do with people who are dying because they're not dying yet. They're not dead yet. So we have to do something. So we are the one of the few uh, services in the world that have the Cicely Saunders neuropalliative rehabilitation models of care. So we don't work in silos. We have a continuum. And we have busted a boiler to set that up. Just to share with you. Then we, have, we go into other areas like pulmonary. It's not something that I'm particularly good at, but I'm very lucky I have some very good youngsters who are good at it. And they do that. Similarly, chronic pain. We run chronic pain clinics. And we have done heaps and heaps of work in chronic pain to identify cohorts of patients that are more amenable to rehab because not everybody wants to get better. There are lots of other secondary factors. So we need to be smart about how we spend our dollars, how we spend our very limited workforce and our resources. Similarly, so what else have we done? Uh, this was just part of evidence building I wanted to share with you because it's all about academics here tonight. But also, I want to share with you our flying faculty. And I know Marlena is sitting in the audience, one of our superstar OTs, who's part of our flying faculty. So we really go, this is, so let me just tell you, this is unpaid. We don't get paid for this. Um, in fact, I take annual leave when I go. 
five minutes, okay. And we go to all of these countries and we help um, um, look at the GAD, the Global Disability Action Plan. We look at all of the barriers and we set up works that we can do, help them get better in developing countries. And we publish everything we do. So whether it's Pakistan, Madagascar, Mongolia or Nigeria, and we really look at uh, key governmental bodies and they may or may not be the WHO because they're very territorial, the WHO. So, you know, we kind of work with who we, uh, we think will make a difference. And we select, we get a lot of invitations. In fact, we go to Sudan next month as well in the new year, which is always scary because my husband's in the audience and he's always worried about where I'm heading off next. So it's a bit like that. So just to, because of time, we make huge number of recommendations from Rehab World, from Australia. That these are the sorts of things we need to be doing. Capacity building, governance, infrastructure. How can we do more with little, with less? So again, we looked at capacity building in developing countries. This is the one of the first studies published, uh, I think last year, I can't remember now, 2018, this year actually, it's not end of the year yet. Uh, and we, we actually made recommendations. And what was really interesting here was that task shifting, it's like, you know, in a busy public hospital, my OT is on leave, so I'll probably ask my, beg my nurse or my physio to please, can you do the OT bit? Because the OT is on leave, it's task shifting. But they tend to do it normally and it's accepted. It's not the right thing. It's, it's a temporary band-aid measure, it's okay. But really people need to invest in those disciplines to move that forward. Very important. Similarly, we also run the um, disaster relief. So currently I'm the chair of the International Society of Physical Medicine Rehabilitation Disaster Relief Committee. And my job is to be globally responsible for the ISPR in response to any disasters. So for example, we had the, all the dramas in Indonesia recently. We have the fires in the United States. And we have all of these international uh, catastrophes. And um, my job is, is to coordinate my team globally with the different regional societies to have an action plan. And we're currently working on that. We were also one of the only teams, the Royal Melbourne Hospital, our team was the only WHO accredited team deployed to Nepal, of which I was the clinical lead. And that was a horrifying experience because you only have to be in that. It's not like a movie. The movie is much nicer. I thought when we had the second earthquake and I was going to die and I thought I'd call my husband Ian to say I'm really sorry for being a crappy wife and <laughs> I, I hope you will forgive me because I'm about to die. And I realized my mobile was not working because <laughs> apparently in earthquakes all everything goes down. Well, you know, I should have known that because you see that in movies, but you know, it didn't click. So, you know, there's lots of practicality about how you get your team out when you're about to die. My team refused to leave. I gave them the option. We were caught in the second earthquake. I have a, a very nice talk at another time I might share with you if you're interested. The, my seven member team physically lifted 78 spinal paraplegic and quadriplegic patients to safety outside because the buildings were cracking and these patients couldn't move and they had already been hurt by the first earthquake. And we manually carried them out. We got an award from the government and blah, 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 from the Nepalese community in Australia and blah, blah, whatever. But the fact of the matter is, it was a really scary experience. We did stop us. We went to Hindukush, I think a month later. And, at the, you know, and we were really going to deploy also to Indonesia recently. But then, of course, the Indonesian Navy um, arrived near Bali, whatever that Lombok, the island was. And they decided they didn't want any foreigners. So good on them. Yeah, they did themselves. So we, it saved us one extra trip. So that was nice. But just to share with you, we do a lot of this work regionally and globally. 
And then it's not what we do. We did the first paper ever um, uh, overview, and we are really working. Uh, a lot of this work is forming the basis for the emergency medical teams by the World Health Organization because we are creating evidence for what needs to be done there. I don't want a neurosurgeon telling me how to manage my spinal patients. They can miff off. They have no idea what to do. You know, it is my territory. I know what I have to do with my patients. So I think it's very important to know where the lines are drawn. Okay. Then, for example, refugees. You think that that's, that wouldn't be enough work? but we also work with refugees and at the moment in fact we have three projects going one in Uganda with the Ugandan government of for South Sudanese refugees another one in Pakistan where we have still 1.9 million refugees living in the Kerber Pass in the north part of the country we're also working with a number of other areas for example in China they have refugees from internal believe it or not so we have a number of collaborations where we're looking at what are we going to do about the refugee disabled population especially the ones who are more vulnerable older women pregnancy young kids and stuff like that and so this was another paper that we published just recently and this was highlighted and was live broadcast um, last year for to the French German and Italian societies of rehab medicine because they that's where the refugee problem is very uh, public as you know with the uh, with the Europeans at the moment and we published what are the health needs where does rehabilitation fit in we know about the PTSD and panic and all that but there are also all of these other injuries that need management and what are we going to do about that what are we going to do about it because the cute medicos don't know what to do with this population once they come in and they're not dying and you know they have all these disabilities what the hell happens so how do we have strategic coordinated approaches so we are making all of those plans that hopefully the WHO and others will look at which are culturally appropriate you know you can't just go to a country and tell them what to do because you've just arrived from Australia it doesn't work like that so you have to really work with the locals similarly some of the so that was a part and this is the last section I won't be too long this is just to show you how we have changed the way we deliver remember the diagram I showed you with our organization our, our center was firstly to improve access to build academic works then to build um, expand rehab it's not just about an outpatient clinic or the ward it's about the global setup so whether you're looking at the flying faculty or the refugees we can also now look at how you can improve service delivery I say this because we have not received a single cent from the department of health or from the hospital to set up these so it is really a labor of love so my colleague uh, professor Mary Galea who is a physiotherapist a neuroscientist and you many of you are aware of how brilliant she is she helps set up these really cheap uh, really like um, I think they range from two to five thousand Malina you probably know more Malina is one of our OTs who helps set it up and you know Malina is also published in this area and so has Mary and this is implementation of low-cost gadgets in public settings to improve functional outcomes especially with OTs and upper limb work sort of work which we don't do do you know that globally if you and I have you and I have a stroke and we're admitted to the top most posh rehab facility in that country we only get five minutes of upper limb rehabilitation every single day five minutes because everybody wants to work on your legs so you can walk out and go home because it's costing us a lot of money keeping you in <coughs> hospital unfortunately so it's about looking at the problem and trying to tackle it because there is no money in the system similarly in rich environments you know we've heard about rats in cages if you can have a triplet identical twin rats in cages who have nothing they don't really respond after they have a brain injury or a, a spinal cord injury so we did the first live enriched environments in a public hospital no, we didn't kill anybody or hurt anybody, but basically we provided an environment for the intervention group that had a lot of cognitive and motor stimulation. So we had a library, we had music, we had games, we had uh, you know, painting, we had all sorts of things to stimulate them outside of therapy. 
and the control arm was just what you normally get as part of a public system. And we found that those people who were motor and cognitively challenged and social interaction and all did so much better. Now you and I know that, isn't it? You think it's a no-brainer, but nobody in the world had done this. We have just finished our second randomized control trial showing change behavior and patient autonomy, how that comes out of this. So I'll share with you that another time. Similarly, we set up movement laboratory. We had to beg and plead and steal and sell ourselves literally to get the money for this. And my colleague again, Mary, was uh, very kindly donated a lot of very expensive stuff. Now we're not bringing people to the laboratory because it's so expensive for people to come in. We we have mobile Bluetooth sensors now, activity sensors. The patients can be doing stuff at home, and I and you know in the clinic what they're up to. So when they come and say, oh, doc, I'm moving my arm, you know they're lying because the sensors don't lie. They're not doing anything but watch TV all day. Yeah. So it's really a way how you change patient behavior and how they can live after disability. And similarly, we're the only ones in Australia at the moment who do the response thing. It's a gadget that you put on the tongue and you give electric currents to the patient. I know it sounds terrible, but the, it's like popcorns at the back of your mouth. And basically, it wakes up the brain by tapping into your fifth and seventh nerves. And the reason is the tongue is one organ in your body that uh, developmentally, embryonically comes from all parts of the brain, hindbrain, midbrain, forebrain. Because if you have a single hair on your tongue, you'll know it. If you have a hair on your arm or leg anywhere, you may not be able to tell it's there. Very sensitive. We've had amazing results. We have published three papers on this. We have the Americans stepping on our door wanting to fund these large mega studies. But you know, we're very careful how we advertise our findings. They have to be taken with extreme caution because this is not about the veteran affairs. Anybody who's had a bomb blast or any kind of traumatic brain injury cannot just go and have this un uncontrolled way because that's the danger of these sorts of things. You have to be careful. So it's taken us a year and we're about to start a big study next year. But it's been a long time coming. Similarly, changing our models with telemedicine. And of course, there's so many things. These are pictures from our ward, our patients, my colleagues, and they've been kind enough to let me uh, use their photos here. And of course, this is us in Mongolia. These are my colleagues. And we were uh, pretending to be Genghis because Genghis Khan is um, the Mongol god, you know, he's Mr. God. It's the only place in the world where I've descended from the airport, but because I have the same surname, I've greeted with a lot of more respect. <laughs> It's lovely. Thank you anyway. I'll stop here. Thanks. I, I'm tempted to say, I want what she's having. <laughs> if you've ever seen Harry next up with me, it's, it's wow. Um, sorry, that was absolutely an amazing presentation. I don't know about everyone here. I'm both in incredibly stimulated but a little bit exhausted as well in the sense that you covered um, one, one of the most important things I think is that you really put rehabilitation into the spotlight and rehabilitation into the spotlight along its continuum and the fact that we have the biggest problem now is non-communicable diseases and that's where we all work that's where we can make a difference. So inspiring, stimulating, um, a passionate, beautiful presentation. I have a question. I'm going to, oh, one down my back. I knew you. <laughs> yeah. Mine's not really a question. Mine's just, I'll give you a line. Mine's just a thank you, and I'll get emotional. Because our daughter, I'm not, I'm not a medical professional. Our daughter was in the Royal Melbourne Hospital in 2014. She had a 
Pindamachina on her brain stem. She had strokes to both sides of the brain after the operation, and no one, no one in the stage would give her rehab. They said she wasn't worth the investment because she had a brain tumour, and ultimately if they were spending money on her, she might die, and that would be a waste of money. We were at the Austin at the time. We couldn't get her back to Geelong Hospital. They refused to take her. They did an MRI and found that she didn't have a tumour. We fought the hospital. We fought the health system. We got a solicitor. We got her into rehab. And two weeks ago, she moved into her own home. Wow. Mm -hmm. So I want everyone to realise that it is worth the investment. The, the alternative we were given was a nursing home in Northcote for the rest of her life. And at that stage, she was still paralysed on her left side. She couldn't talk. She had a tracheostomy. She couldn't eat. She's having, she was told she'd never get rid of the trachea. She got rid of that. She was told she'd never speak. She's learning to speak now. So I, I just want everyone to, to really take note of this. That's why I'm emotional because I was there. I went through all that with my daughter and fought and fought and fought doctors who, and I said at the time, if you're going to save people, if you're going to, the doctor's amazing, um, Huey Lau, you might know, he's a beautiful man, he saved her life. But if you're going to save lives, you've got to look after what happens after you save the life. Otherwise, there's no point. If the quality of life is going to disappear, there's no point saving people. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for sharing that story because uh, I, I really feel for you and I hate to tell you this, but this is a very common story. And I think one of the problems is that those people making those predictions are not trained in rehabilitation medicine. They are acute medical surgical folk and they're not trained to prognosticate. And what I tell my colleagues is that they're not trained to do that. Just like I'm not trained to operate on somebody's brain, uh, you know, they're not trained, and this is for us an ongoing battle. And I think that uh, it is important that the consumers, the patient families also understand their rights. The public system is for the public patient. It's not to make money. It is, that is not our business. Our business is to make sure we help where we can. And sometimes, like, your story is wonderful, and I'm so glad that, you know, she's made it home. But it's not over, and she need ongoing speech pathology and other bits that you mentioned. So, you know, keep fighting for you. Thank you. Yes. Kirby, you have a great team. Kirby <laughs> is a, a great young woman. Absolutely. Any other questions? Clear as mud, huh? <laughs> I think that was the issue. It was clear. It was extremely clear and challenging in many, many ways. So please join with me then in thanking Fari for such a, a wonderful presentation. I know we're on a time because we're doing okay? Okay. So we have the, the next exciting part of this evening and that is presentation of two scholarships, two Alan Martin scholarships. And that is always exciting because there's people who have a big surprise. I have to say that this year was our um, strongest year of applications. Not only did we have more applications than we've ever had, more than twice as many than we've ever had, and that's a lot. We're getting um, well into the decades, if you like.
and that's exciting I think from our perspective and not only were there a lot but the quality was was really to be in awe of. In fact, there was very little separation across all of those applications. So that's exciting as well for us. It shows you, Fari, and for all of us, that there's a lot of people out there with a real eye on rehabilitation and making a difference, and making a difference in the areas that Alan felt were really important. Quality of life, community, rehabilitation and community participation. So all of the things that you talked about in your presentation. So now I'd like to invite to the podium George Beginners to actually um, tell us the, the winner of the first one. But George has to say something that I know is special to him and that I love hearing. So welcome, George. Thank you, Professor Jacinda. Professor Khan, I'm not a medical man, but boy, I learned a lot tonight. And not only that, you know what I found the best of all? It was so humorous. <laughs> she made people laugh. It was wonderful. I have to put glasses on. I'll, keep it, I'll try and keep it as short as I can because the night's dragged on a bit. Um, I'd like to also, uh, before I start, I'm George Beginners from the Rotary Club of Kew. And uh, this was started up by one of our members, Alan Martin. He had the foresight and he had the energy and the passion to help people who um, had had uh, brain injury and couldn't go back to the normal job they were doing or get the idea was to get them back into society we're doing something similar in our rotary club with people with stroke we're mentoring them and we're helping them from being a carpenter perhaps to be an IT man get them back into society so the Alan Martin research scholarship was originally sponsored back in 2016 that's when we started the Alan Martin Scholarship is an initiative, as I said, offered to clinicians and health professionals in order to support new research in the field of recovery following acquired brain injury. And the scholarship is named after Alan, who was instrumental, as I said, in founding and supporting the operation of VIBERA. Now, VIBERA stands for Victorian Brain Injury Recovery Association. It acknowledges Alan's dedication and support for advancing clinical knowledge and practice for people with complex brain injury and with particular emphasis on slow stream neurological rehabilitation. And the scholarship enables an ongoing acknowledgement of Alan's work and his legacy. And so the Summer Foundation has taken on the management of this scholarship as a commitment to continuing the work of Vibera, which ceased operation in 2015. Vibera provided members with a forum to explore and document innovative research and practice in advanced formal publication. The Summer Foundation's purpose and goals align well with those of Vibera, created for the research scholarship and are also continuing to hold breakfast clubs 
which provide regular opportunities, and some of you probably attend those, to hear about and discuss up-to-date clinical research and practice in the area of acquired brain injury and slow stream rehabilitation. I have great pleasure and delight now to get straight to the point of making someone here very happy. I'd like to announce the winner of the scholarship to Danielle Sosonetti. Would you please come up here, please? Danielle, congratulations and well done. Thank you. And uh, I'd just like to say that uh, she's an occupational therapist and senior clinician from the Alfred Health ABI unit. Her project in, was titled Optimism, Independence in the Community, Application of Generalization Principles and Rehabilitation to Maintain Positive Daily Routines Following Acquired Brain Injury. It's a long title, sorry. It, but wonderful, and congratulations, well deserved, no doubt. So, without further ado, here is the certificate. And uh, I, well done, that's it there. And let's come over here a bit. And let me shake your hand. <laughs> well done. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank you very much. You can have that envelope. And now, please come and say a couple of words. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so I much. Think, yeah. Thank you very much. Um, thank you to the Summer Foundation and, and certainly to um, everybody who's actually facilitated me uh, putting this project together. I'm very excited about a project that I think is going to make such a significant difference to community integration. So I look forward to being able to present the findings of this study and certainly this scholarship is going to help considerably with getting the ball rolling with what I think is a very important piece of work. I have to say personally as well, having known Alan Martin over the years through Verbira earlier in my career, this makes it a little bit more special for me as well. So um, I'd like to say thank you to everybody who has known Alan as well um, and, and what a special man he was. So thank you so much. Well done. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much, George, and congratulations, Danielle. Okay, so we have a second announcement to make and I'm going to invite the Robinson Gill representatives to, to come up and make our second announcement for the second Alan Martin Scholarship for this year. So welcome, Danielle and Lucy. Sorry, I don't think I said your names. Um, before my um, colleague speaks, I just wanted to say um, how special it is to be here. I first met Alan through his wife, Dr Joan Teeny, and she was one of the first people, and I've always wanted to say this to her without crying, that has taught me that both health and the intersection between health and the community is one, not separate. I took one of my brain injured clients to see Joan when I was working with homeless people. And I thought to myself, well, I'm here to see this GP 
and this GP is probably going to give my client some tablets. I too, like Farley, had no background in working with homeless people or no experience. So I was nervous because I thought, oh shit, she'll be looking at me to have some level of expertise. So she came out in front of the reception. She bossed my client around. She asked him how he was going with his housing, whether he was getting care, and whether he was being looked after by all the people in the community. And then she dragged him out the back and gave him some medicine and a great lecture to me about what I needed to do for him. So I want to thank her very much for being such an influence in my practice and for Alan, because it, behind every great man is a great woman. Thank you, Joan. Um, I am going to rely on my notes because I am a solicitor and not a barrister. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Robinson Gill Lawyers, uh, we came across the Summer Foundation through Lucy and um, she's well known to you all. It is a great honour to present this award and be part of the work that the Summer Foundation does. The Summer Foundation, I like to think, has a similar ethos to Robinson Gill, which is obviously aspiring um, in, from our point of view, in that what the Summer Foundation does, which I think is great, is it sees the whole person and not just the injury. Um, it sees that a person needs to live a full and enriching life. Um, it takes care of the fundamentals to ensure that that can happen. And it's an organisation that both sees the silent damage of acquired brain injuries, but also ensures that people can live beyond them. And um, so it is with great pleasure that I'm here to announce the winner of the second Ellen Martin Research Scholarship to Dr. Kate Gould. And I'll read your bio, if that's all right. Um, so um, you are a clinical neuro neuropsychologist, and you work in community rehabilitation in private practice and a research fellow at the Monash Epworth Rehabilitation Research Centre. Your Kate's project is Cyberability, and it's understanding, preventing, and treating cybercrime after acquired brain injury. Um, we've um, at Robinson Gill worked with Kate. Um, we love working with her um, and I think well done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I might just have to bop up a little bit. Thank you so much. Um, this um, recognition of this work means so much professionally and personally as well. Um, I, I would love to sort of um, say a few comments. First of all, how in equal parts, um, incredibly um, inspiring and very intimidating, Fari, your, your incredible talk was. <laughs> um, 
and um, it kind of the global kind of um, aspect of your work really links a, a little bit to the the work that we've now been funded to continue with, which. Um, started with um, myself and my client, um, Colin, who was unfortunately scammed and we realised that um, there was no real resources out there to guide clinicians on how to help someone with a brain injury who'd been scanned and scammed by um, a supposed woman in Ghana who was probably a multinational um, organised crime syndicate. Um, so this is a really fantastic opportunity to um, educate and promote awareness of the, the risks some everyone in the community um, face, but particularly how challenging it is after you've had a brain injury to try to understand and navigate through the, um, the very difficult financial and, and emotional loss that that can bring. I was really, um, I think, first inspired in terms of doing collaborative work, um, Colin and um, my collaborators, um, Anna Holiday at Tasmania Brain Injury Association and Jenny Ponsford at Monash University. Um, back in many years ago when I first came to Verbira, I was really inspired to see um, individuals with um, brain injury and other conditions coming up and sharing their stories and their families sharing their stories and that was something that I hadn't seen in, in other kind of public forums. Um, and um, it really, I think, the many, many highlights of Alan, um, Alan's um, incredible career and legacy. And it's, uh, from a personal level, also very special to be able to receive this award in his name and, um, and, um, and, and respectfully as well with Joan's um, backing as well. So thank you so much. And um, I also look forward to hopefully sharing the results of our trial in, in the coming time. Thank you. So, it's such a lovely note to finish on, isn't it? When, when people go away feeling very happy and go away ready to do some more wonderful work. Um, it's been a fabulous evening. Uh, as, as Kate says, and, and Danielle knows, that, that the next part of the process of the scholarship is to present findings, and we present the findings at the Breakfast Club series, usually around a year later, so early next year. We'll have last year's winner presenting her findings. Um, Lucy looking at, at um, fatigue, and we will look forward to having both Danielle and Kate present their work. Um, congratulations to Colin too, because without Colin and his incredible, incredible bravery to share his story, and Colin does that in such a such an effective way when he does present. So um, a beautiful note to finish the evening on. I would like to just before we finish to thank um, the staff from the Summer Foundation who have helped tremendously, um, Natasha and uh, Lou who's been amazing and is Julie still here? I can't, I'm so blind, Julie's there too. Without the work of, of these staff members it wouldn't have flown so beautifully. I'd like to again thank you Fari for such an inspirational presentation and to thank the, the, um, the two organisations who make our scholarship possible, the Q Rotary Club each year coming up. It is such a, a special event for us to look forward to and Robinson Gill who have now joined our family um, to actually promote this evening and to promote Alan's work. It's, it's interesting, you know, not many days go by without me thinking about Alan in, in sometimes in sort of 
cheeky ways, other times in, in really important ways, but tonight's really, really special. So it's lovely to have you all here. Thanks for coming, and we'll see you next year. Thank you.